everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Hey, it's so good to see you today. You doing all right? Awesome. We're going to continue celebrating and worshiping God today, and I think that God has something really awesome in store for us. Yeah? Cool. Okay, great. Awesome. Yes. You feel free to clap. Uh, We are continuing in our series. My name's Emily, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here at Discovery. And we're continuing in our series called Minding the Gap. And this series is all about kind of looking at the struggle of what it means to follow Jesus, what we believe about God and what we experience from God and in our own lives can be different sometimes. And it's designed to bring kind of the sense of relief to you and I, um, wherever we are on this faith spectrum, to bring some clarity to what it is to be a follower of Christ, what it is to be a Christian. And it's sort of designed to help us get unstuck and to help us set a reasonable expectation for ourselves and for each other and also with God. So the phrase that we're going to be dealing with today is, I thought I should be further along by now. Now, when you think of this phrase, I thought I should be further along by now, I want to give you some, um, an opportunity to respond. This doesn't have to be in your faith or in your walk with God or spirituality or whatever, but what's the first thing that comes to your mind to fill in this blank in your life? I thought I should be further along in blank by now. Laundry. Yes. I've been trying to find a clean pair of socks for a long time. I get it. Patience. I thought I would be further along in patience by now. Trusting in God or in people or in yourself. All of the above. Yes. Anybody else? I think for me, the blank that I would fill in is I thought that I should be further along in believing in myself by now or caring for myself by now. I thought I should be further along. I feel like there's so many things that I can put in this blank. I don't know about you. Laundry, patience, trusting, I could put that in all of those. And I think a lot of Christians today and also in the New Testament, when um, Christianity was forming, that they were asking the same question of themselves. Like, what should I be doing better? What should I have been just, just killing it at before now? And I think that Paul, he's a guy that wrote a lot of the New Testament, he answers this question, and we're going to talk about Romans 7 and 8 today. So we're going to read a lot of Bible. I hope you're ready for it. It's going to be good. I think one of the things that I can answer in this blank, I thought I should be further along in blank by now, is sometimes the anxiety that preachers get when they feel like they have to share this like super impressive like new thing that they found. And what today, the super impressive new thing that I found is in the Bible that I didn't make up and that we're going to read together and explore together 
Because in Romans 7, Paul writes about how just the general population, how all of humanity, we have this thing inside of us, this moral compass maybe that says we should be farther along by now. If you've ever been in a habit that keeps reoccurring in your life that you're really frustrated at, like for me example, I can be late to things. Many of you have probably been in meetings with me and you have experienced me being late to meetings and I hate it. I know that I should set my alarm an hour before my meeting and be there an hour early and sometimes it just doesn't happen. It frustrates me and it frustrates a lot of other people. Has anyone had that experience before? You don't have to say with me, that's fine. (laughs) Yes. Um, A lot of people might have another issue. I thought I should be farther along in my path of trying to be sober. I thought I should be farther along in my path of trying to get my homework done on time or figuring out my relationship with my spouse or my parents or myself or with God. A lot of us heap on a lot of guilt on ourselves. I know I do. And in the Greco-Roman world, they experience the same thing. The Greco-Roman world is based on a lot of philosophy and asking questions about what is true and what is right and what is proper. And a lot of the Greco-Roman reality was based on just trying to find the right way to live. And not all of it was spiritually based, but they were asking the right questions. How do we live a moral and correct life? And Paul uses this context to describe it to people who don't believe in God and people who do. When Paul wrote um, the part of the New Testament, he used rhetoric. It was used pretty frequently. And especially in the book of Romans, where we're going to look at today, he uses rhetoric in a term called prosopopoeia. I'm going to have you say that with me because that's a big, long word. Prosopopoeia. Prosopopoeia. Good job, I'm gonna say it one more time, and then you're gonna repeat after me. Prosopopoeia. Good job, it's not sopopoeia, like what you get at Casa Bonita, but that would be delicious. Um, So prosopopoeia, it's basically another word for personification. So it's like describing this hypothetical group of people or person that you um, use to tell a story about and to prove a point. So um, think about prosopopoeia while we read the book of Romans today. And this specific chapter in Romans, so many scholars go back and forth to try to figure out who Paul is personifying in this prosopopoeia passage of his letter to the Romans. A lot of people think that he's personifying a Gentile, which is someone who is not a Jew. It's a non-believer, someone who is essentially saying, I thought I should be further along by now, but God is not necessarily in the picture yet. He's directing this um, chapter to someone who wants to be morally good and an upstanding person. And I think that that's what Paul's doing here. And we're going to name this prosopopoeia today, this hypothetical person, because he does not name them. It kind of sounds at first that Paul's just like fighting with himself, which is a little bit weird. So we're going to name this person. Um, Does anybody want to uh, claim the title of naming this prosopopoeia today? Fred, I love it. Prosopopoeia is Fred. So we've got Paul and Fred talking to each other, okay? All right, Romans 7. Paul starts off by saying this. 
basically what we're gonna do, we're gonna read chapters seven and eight together. So if you feel like you're kind of exhausted about looking at the screen, just take a deep breath. We'll take some spaces and some pauses in between. But I think that Paul actually has a really good case here. All right, he's talking with Fred. He says, Fred, you shouldn't have any trouble understanding this. For you know all the ins and the outs of the law, how it works and how its power touches only the living. For instance, a wife is legally tied to her husband while he lives. But if he dies, she's free. If she lives with another man while her husband is living, she's obviously an adulteress. But if he dies, she is quite free to marry another man in good conscience with no one's disapproval. So Paul starts off right off the bat with a moral issue. And he says, so my friends, Fred, is this something like what has taken place with you? When Christ died, he took that entire rule dominated way of life down with him and left it in the tomb, leaving you free to marry a resurrection life and bear offspring of faith for God. For as long as we lived that old way of life, doing whatever we felt we could get away with, sin was calling most of the shots as the old law code hemmed us in. And this made us all the more rebellious. In the end, all we had to show for it was miscarriages and stillbirths. But now that we're no longer shackled to that domineering mate of sin and out from under all those oppressive regulations and fine print, we're free to live a new life in the freedom of God in about a sentence, could you rephrase what they were saying there? Nose goes. I'm winning, you guys. (laughs) Okay, essentially, uh, Paul is using this um, metaphor of a husband and wife, they are bound to each other, through marriage, and if the husband dies, she is no longer married to the husband. Does that make sense? And so he's um, then taking that into religion and Christianity, and he's taking the law and Jesus together um, when um, we essentially, this is very confusing. I really, I'm going to read it one more time. Um, It says, as long as we lived that old way of life, doing whatever we felt we could get away with, sin was calling most of the shots as the old law code hemmed us in. So taking the law in Jesus, and essentially Jesus, or Paul is saying that Jesus is the one that is overtaking the law, which is interesting because he's talking to a bunch of people who are looking at um, the moral issues of life and also Jews who their whole life was um, bent on following the law. And Paul says, he says this, he says, I can hear you say, if the law code was as bad as all that, it's no better than sin itself. He says that's certainly not true. The law code had a perfectly legitimate function. Without its clear guidelines for right and wrong, moral behavior would be mostly guesswork. Apart from the succinct and surgical command, you shall not covet, I could have dressed covetedness up to look like a virtue and ruined my life with it. All right, this passage is a little bit easier. Can anybody paraphrase this one? The law was not all bad. 
And you kind of need something to tell you what is good and what is bad, right? If you say, hey, don't do this because it's bad, then you kind of experience why it's bad. Paul goes on to say to Fred, he says, don't you remember how it was? I do perfectly well. The law code started out as an excellent piece of work. But what happened, though, was that sin found a way to pervert the command into a temptation, making a piece of forbidden fruit out of it. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, was used to seduce me. Without all the paraphernalia of the law code, sin looked pretty dull and lifeless, and I went along without paying much attention to it. But once sin got its hands on the law code and decked itself out in all that finery, I was fooled and I fell for it. The very command that was supposed to guide me into life was cleverly used to trip me up, throwing me God's good and common sense, or throwing me headlong. So sin was plenty alive and I was stone dead. But the law code itself is God's good and common sense, each command sane and holy counsel. Anybody can paraphrase this one? Even though we're not bound by the law, there is still good stuff there. Have you ever been told something, either when you were a kid or now, and you're told to not do something or you're told that it's good to do something? And um, I kind of think of like when my parents told me not to eat a bunch of sweets. It made me want to eat a bunch of sweets. And I didn't care the, about the health modifications that would come along with eating a whole piece of pie. I just wanted the satisfaction in eating that piece of pie. And sometimes when we're told not to do something, we just want to do it because we have that boundary. So oftentimes, um, religious leaders and teachers of the law, they would put other laws outside of God's laws to make sure that nobody um, disobeyed God's laws. So it was kind of called a fence around the law. So there's a lot of laws at play here. And um, throughout time, the motivation to obey the law changed. Paul goes on to say this. He says, Fred, I can already hear your next question. Does that mean that I can't even trust what is good, that is the law? Is good just as dangerous as evil? No, again, sin simply did what sin is so famous for doing, using the good as a cover-up to tempt me to do what would finally destroy me. By hiding within God's good commandment, sin did far more mischief than it could have ever accomplished on his own. And Paul says this, he says, I can anticipate the response of what is coming from you. I know that all of God's commandments are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? And he says, yes, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more, says Fred, for if I know the law but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. 
My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me, and it gets the better of me every time. So a large part of my friend group um, is composed of people who don't believe in God. And mostly it's because of past hurts or past trauma that they've been through, and it makes sense in the place that they're at about what they believe about God and morality and all of that. But when some of my friends, when they bring up faith and religion, their main argument is that they don't need God to know what the right thing to do is. Their argument is that they don't need help from anyone or anything, and they can figure out life on their own. They're good, and they're fine. But there are also these tiny moments of their lives that I get to see when they come and they're miserable and they come to me and they say, hey, Em, I keep trying to fix my life and it's not working. And I know what I should be doing. I know I shouldn't be drinking this much. I know I shouldn't um, be looking at this. I know I shouldn't be engaging with this person. But I thought that I would be further along by now. It's like something inside of me is making me do the things that I don't want to do. But I don't know how to stop it. Paul says, this happens so regularly that it's predictable. He says, the moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. Fred says, I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? Throughout all this argument, this kind of confusing back and forth piece that Paul is writing about, he gets to this question and says, is there no one who can do anything for me? He makes this argument to say, hey, we can really try to live life on our own and make the right decisions, but the more and more we try to do that, the more and more frustrated we can get. And really, there's not anybody who can help us. And he ends Romans 7 by saying that the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions, where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Paul's writing in this perspective of someone who doesn't know God, but I want to take a second and for us to pause so I can ask myself and so I can ask you, I want us to think about this together, whether you believe in God or not. When was the last time that you were so disappointed in yourself? When you were so disappointed in yourself that you didn't do something that you should have? When was the last time where you've thought, oh, I thought I should have been farther along by now. When was the last time? Because I don't know about you, but as I'm reading this, I can relate to so many things that they're saying. Even as someone who's been a Christian for almost my entire life, I have a lot of moments where I say, man, I should know better. And I should be doing the right thing, but it's really hard to do that sometimes. And in Romans 7, Paul continues to make this case that even someone with the highest morality ever, they're still not going to be able to fully get there to whatever destination they want to be at. 
So then in Romans 8, he kind of presents a solution to Fred. And he says, with the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, this fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The, life of, the spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. No, in his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, it could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for but we couldn't deliver is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. I think that's a beautiful thing to think about. Paul goes on to tell Fred, those who think that they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's actions in them find that God's Spirit is in fact in them living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end, and attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious and free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. And anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. And that person ignores who God is and what he's doing. And God isn't pleased at being ignored. I want to invite you um, to close your eyes at this time and to really think about the words that I'm going to say next in your own life, in your family's lives. Paul continues to make his case and he says, but if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God the spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome him and whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive into himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does, as surely he did in Jesus, you're delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. But the best thing to do is to give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. I know that for me, 
this invitation, even though I've been a Christian for a long time, this invitation to bury this do-it-yourself personality and this do-it-yourself lifestyle, that can be really hard because we live in America. Like, we're supposed to do things on our own, right? Kind of the motto is to get yourself up by your bootstraps and work hard to help others, obviously, but to have that strength to keep going in life. But I think you know as well as I do that that only lasts for so long. And even though that this book was written thousands of years ago, I can feel pretty connected to it right now. And Paul says, this resurrection life you received from God, it's not a timid or grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant. It's greeting God with a child like, what's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is and we know who we are, father and children. I want to stop at this line right now. Paul says that we know who God is and we know who we are, father and children. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about God as a father and not one who might be distant or aggressive or um, abusive, a father who cares for you and a father who loves you, a father who has his best intentions for you, a father who wants to see what your life is like and be a part of that with you? And have you ever thought about what it would mean to be a child of God? to be someone who would walk with your dad, who would learn the things that he would teach you, and to know that your identity would be because he loved you and nothing else. Paul says that we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with him. And during this whole time through Romans 7 and Romans 8, Paul is sharing the gospel with anybody who wants to hear it, anybody who is morally frustrated about their own um, desires to do good, but they don't know where to start. Anyone who's trying to figure out life on their own. The last section of Romans 8 says this. That's why I don't think there are any comparisons between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. And everything in creation is being more or less held back. And God reigns in it until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. All around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The spirit of God is arousing us within. And we are also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. And that is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. And we, of course, don't see what is enlarging us. But the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's spirit is right alongside us, helping us along. 
If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves. He knows our pregnant condition and keeps us present before God. And that's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. And this is the beautiful thing. Paul says, God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. And after God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed up by calling people by name by calling people by name. And after he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. So, what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? But the one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in scripture. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing Nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. Because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. I want to invite you to get out your phones in this moment. Um, as we've been processing what Paul has been saying to Fred, someone who is really frustrated about how his life is panning out, he kind of brings the gospel and says, hey, there's someone greater that can help you handle your issues. I want you, um, this week, there's four questions that I want you to think about. And I want to invite you also to read Romans 7 and 8 a few times this week, whether you're a believer or not. And I want you to answer these questions for yourself because I think on your own time, this might be helpful for you. We can just scratch the surface here, but the real work is when you go home and actually look at it for yourself. Four questions I want you to think about this week. What are the expectations that people have of you right now? Whether it's work or family, whether it's um, in your neighborhood, whether it's at your job? What are the expectations that people have of you? The next question that I want you to think about 
is, what are the expectations that you have of yourself? What are the expectations that you have of yourself in your job, in your family, in your spiritual life? The third question is, what expectations do you think that God has of you? I know that as I've gone through these on my own, that third question is a lot different than the first two. And then the last question, what might it feel like if you forgave yourself? What might it feel like if you forgave yourself for all of those expectations that maybe you didn't meet or that other people wanted you to meet that you failed to do? What might it feel like if you forgave yourself for the gap of what God expects of you and what you expect of yourself? Some of us may be really good at forgiving others, but definitely not ourselves. I know that's true of myself. That everybody else can have a break, but not me because I know better. So what if you could forgive yourself? And what if you could actually believe the words that Paul is saying? Like, hey, you're actually free in Christ. You're a child of God, and you don't have to live this life on your own. And maybe all of the things that your brain is telling you, maybe not all of those things are true. Maybe the things that you say, I thought I should have been better at X, Y, Z by now, maybe you could give yourself some slack. Maybe we could all look at the expectations that God has of us and change and reorient our lives to look at that instead of the expectations that we have of ourselves. I want to invite the band up and we're going to continue to worship together through music. If you're able to, I would like you to stand with me. Um, Mary Oliver is a poet and she's one of my favorite poets ever. And she wrote a poem that I think really sums this up well, especially about forgiveness um, to myself. So if you're able to, please stand with me. If you'd like to close your eyes while I'm reading this, feel free to do so. If you want to read it along with me, feel free to do so as well. She says this, angels are wonderful, but they are so well aloof. It's what I sense in the mud and the roots of the trees or the well or the barn or the rock with its citron map of lichen that halts my feet and makes my eyes flare, feeling the presence of some spirit, some small God who abides there. Now, if I were a perfect person, I would be bowing continuously. I'm not, though I pause wherever I feel this holiness, which is why I'm so often late coming back from wherever I went. Forgive me. Father, I find myself putting a lot of guilt and shame on my own life and saying often that I'm not good enough or that I should have been better at this. I find myself saying often that I should be farther along in my faith journey with you. 
I should be farther along in my leadership development. I should be farther along in my laundry by now. And oftentimes when I say those things, I forget to just listen. I forget to just pause and take a moment to reflect on what your expectations are of me. And I think a big one is to actually understand that I'm not in control of my own life and that my job is to trust you and to walk with you and to follow you as best as I can. And also my job is to know that you love me and that you care for me and that we're in this life together. God, for those of us who need to forgive ourselves, would you help us find patience? Would you help us find strength? And would you help us to pause whenever we feel holy moments with you? And if we have questions to be able to ask those, and if we just need to experience your presence and your holiness, may we do that together with you and with each other. Bless this time as we continue to worship you. It's in your name we pray, amen.